And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. For more than three decades, Fred Upton was a solid pillar of the congressional Republican establishment in Washington. A center-right Republican, partisan for sure, but with a reputation for working across the aisle to get things done, like the 21st Century Cures Act to spur medical discovery and innovation. He worked with Joe Biden on that one. Then in 2021, after the insurrection at the Capitol, Upton joined nine of his Republican colleagues to vote for the impeachment of Donald Trump. And all hell broke loose. He and his family were the target of death threats. Trump targeted him for defeat, and an unfavorable remap forced him from politics. I sat down with Upton at a diner in his hometown of St. Joseph, Michigan, to talk about his journey from young aide to President Ronald Reagan to this abrupt end to his career in Congress, where he has spent more than half his life. Here's that conversation. Fred Upton, it's good to see you in the neighborhood here in your hometown. Well, it's nice to have you as a constituent, quite frankly. When you I do, post, I am, yes. Post I, uh, Buchanan and uh, New Buffalo, Southwest Michigan is the place to be in the summer for sure, but it's actually not bad in the winter either. No, it's not. It's, it's, it's beautiful around here. We're in St. Joseph, uh, Michigan, where you were born and raised and, and, uh, and still live, sitting on the you, this is a podcast. They can't see it. We're at we're in a, a restaurant on the harbor here, and you uh, uh, you had something to do with uh, this this beautiful setting. Well, I worked with uh, our then Governor Granholm and uh, Governor Snyder, and this was a pretty contaminated site, uh, industrial site, uh, for a lot of years. And it's been completely transformed. In fact, we had the senior PGA here uh, at, at Harbor Shores uh, just a couple of weeks ago. And so... How'd you do? Did you play? No. <laughs> you know, I'm going to be retiring, but I'm not going to be a golfer. <laughs> I need a lot of lessons. But uh, but it's really transformed the area. Just just a little bit of history, because you're sort of, you're sort of uh, royalty in this area. Your family... Uh, started a little company a few generations ago called Whirlpool. In fact, we're we're sitting on a world what was a Whirlpool site. That's right. There. I actually made washing machines literally here back in the seventies. I mean, that's where the the factory was. How did the Uptons get to this area, and how did how did Whirlpool come about? Well, my grandfather Fred, his brother Lou, and their uncle Emery, who was apparently the smarty pants of the group, he was an engineer. Uh, they developed the, the hand washer machine. Their first contract was with Sears. And where, where have the Upton, but have the Uptons, where did the Uptons come from originally? Uh, England, mm-hmm. uh, along 16 generations now. Oh. In any case, they started this little company. They made BB guns, uh, Upton BB guns. I got one. <laughs> Someone asked me if I have a gun. Yes, I do. I got an Upton BB gun, but uh, then it was the 1900 uh, Corporation, and then they, they changed to Whirlpool uh, literally over 100 years ago. They've you know, they per- since uh, purchased Maytag and KitchenAid, and it's now the world's largest appliance manufacturer. The headquarters are here in St. Joe Bar- Benton Harbor, and, you know, they care about this community. It's it's one of those corporations that's really involved to try and make make this a better place in large part also because they want folks to work here, uh, to live here. One of the striking things about this area, and you've seen it, you've seen the transformation is, you know, they talk about the twin cities of Benton Harbor and St. Joe, but they're really not twins. 
they're really quite different. St. Joe is sort of your picturesque kind of all-American city, and and Benton Harbor is one of the most impoverished cities in Michigan. Part of it had to do with the fact, not just Whirlpool, this is not an indictment in any way, but it was an industrial area. People worked in these factories. A lot of them went away. But Benton Harbor now is uh, largely African-American, impoverished, and so on. How did how did you see that transformation over time, and, and what do we do about that? Well, I wanted to help, so I actually have spent a lot of time trying to make this a better place. So uh, working with law enforcement, working with city leaders, uh, Whirlpool being a community partner. Literally, as you came to this hotel today, you likely passed uh, $25 million new affordable housing facility that Whirlpool put a lot of money into, working with the Michigan State Housing Authority uh, for affordable housing for folks like law enforcement and teacher families. Uh, Benton Harbor, for a hundred years, their water main lines were made out of wood. Now, they didn't leak because wood swells, but as a consequence, you couldn't build a building on Main Street in Benton Harbor taller than two stories. Hmm. Uh, I got an earmark a lot of years ago, uh, worked with EDA, Economic Development Administration. We tore out those lines, we put in regular lines, and Whirlpool, in fact, built a new three-story major uh, complex in Benton Harbor right on Main Street, which has helped generate— L- Let me ask you a question, though. Um, was it hard for uh, for your family? Was it hard for your—having uh, been so invested in the community and invested in the company, uh, when they had to make these decisions to— to move facilities, uh, the, which I assume were economic decisions. Yeah, well, you know, I worked building washing machines uh, when I was in college uh, here. Uh, but for a lot of reasons, they moved that plant, uh, I think, to Ohio or Oklahoma or someplace. They had a screw plant literally making screws, and they closed that down. But Whirlpool now, I believe, has more employees, white-collar, engineering, uh, et cetera, than they had back in the 60s or 70s. And again, one of the things that they really wanted to do to recruit folks here was, you know, the chain is only as strong as the weakest link. Benton Harbor had to get better. And uh, particularly on the tax base where literally a new house had not been constructed in Benton Harbor for decades uh, when that water issue changed. And I've been working with EPA actually the last number of years on lead. Of course, we all know about the Flint water lead issue. Yes. Benton Harbor had that issue here, too. Yes, and yes. So uh, a couple of years ago, I got millions of dollars. And, in fact, we're going to have all the homes replaced with their lead lines literally uh, in the next year and a half. On the health side, too, I got an earmark for a couple million dollars uh, in the last, actually, this fiscal year appropriation bill that's going to help really reach out to families that are struggling with appropriate health care, working with a uh, pretty major health system now in the state of Michigan, one of the largest in the country. So I'm an optimist. I'm a Cubs fan. <laughs> yes, know, we'll talk about yeah, that. But yeah, things always get, you know. But but we have to work together, and that's what that's what I've been all about. Is yeah, Congress we'll, we'll talk. I want to talk about that too. But let's get up to date here, because you went to the University of Michigan, and you went thinking you were going to be a journalist. 
Well, and, you've done a lot of good and background you, here. And yeah. you and you were the editor of the sports. Well, I was and I was a sports. I'm trying to get, I'm the, trying to give you a little boost yeah, here, brother. Know, don't, don't ruin the story. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yes, and a Cubs fan. We're not far from Chicago here. That is sort of the definition of an optimist. How, how did that all? How did you become a Cubs fan? And what drew you to sports? Of course, living in Southwest Michigan, way before cable, we listened to WGN. That was yeah. the radio and the TV station. Yeah. And, as you know, back in, particularly in the 60s when I was growing up, uh, every Cub game was on TV. But my, both my grandparents uh, grew up in Chicago, and uh, so it was natural. They became Cub fans. It's only an hour and a half to Wrigley, and you could sit in the bleachers for a dollar. Uh, so you must have suffered through what I celebrated, which was the 69 season, because I was growing up in New York. I was well, a Mets, Mets fan. Oh, yeah, I remember the Mets. Cubs I remember blew, that game what, a in 10-point lead? Yeah, 10.5 game lead. Uh, I think it was Jimmy Qualls, our center fielder. That yes. Did Ron Sano, Ernie Banks, Don Kessinger. I can still give you the lineup back then, but it was we should have won. <laughs> and we had the biggest homer broadcasters you ever saw. Jack Brickhouse yes. and Harry Carey. Later on, they were they were something else, but it was an exciting time. It was, uh, but you didn't end up going into journalism. Why? Yes, I wanted to be a sports writer. I uh, when I graduated, I uh, made a quick trip to Europe where I was a head barman at a pub in uh, uh, northern Scotland, which is where all good journalists train. It, anyway. it was. I brought my wife yeah. back there a few years ago. It's in Olapool, which is way up north, and you go you catch the ferry to the. The Hebrides, a beautiful spot. You can't get into any trouble, which I did not. Um, but I came back, and here's the interesting story. I met this young guy that was running for Congress. His name was David Stockman. I a was, wonderkind. Yeah, was a real smarty pants, a really green eye shades guy. And Product hit, of the local that's right, schools it, here. And- but he, uh, he ran for Congress. I volunteered for him and ran a couple of counties, and we really spooked. The- and had you... Been involved in politics never. before? Nope, never. So what, uh, what attracted you to this? Well, I met him. He, I had never been to Washington. Uh, he had a good grasp of the federal government and what he wanted to do, cared about the area, came from a big agriculture family here just south of town in Stevensville. And I was, um, I'll say this. Here's the interesting story if you let me tell the whole tale. So my uncle, uh, his name was Chet Burns. Uh, was a very prominent, ended up being a very prominent judge here in town. Ran for Congress. Actually in the state, he did. He ran for Congress in 62 to take the place of uh, a guy who had been in office for 30-some years uh, who, who died. And the race was very close. It was an open primary. Uh, multiple candidates were in, including the Speaker of the State House and others. And so and we all thought he was going to win. And he lost by, I don't know, 100, 200 votes, something like that. This was a primary. Primary in August of 62. So the guy that beat my uncle was a guy by the name of Ed Hutchinson. Yeah, and Ed, I remember him. Ed was also a University of Michigan lawyer, came from two counties uh, to the north, Fenville, a little small town. But Ed was uh, uh, got on judiciary, as my uncle would have, because they're both lawyers. And come 1974, Ed was then the ranking member on the Judiciary Committee with Rodino on the Nixon impeachment. Now, yeah. had my uncle won, he also would have been on judiciary. He also would have been ranking because the seniority system was really in place back then. Uh, my uncle had not a very good opinion of Richard Nixon. It would have been completely different, whereas 
Hutchinson supported him even after Nixon resigned, even after the smoking gun. Uh, I, I remember. I actually remember this. I was sort of like a. It would have changed the. You wouldn't have had the landslide back in 1974 with the Democrats really moving big time, and uh, so so Stockman. Back to the story original question. He had been the staff director of the Republican Conference uh, prior to that. Saw the same story. Was not happy with Hutchinson, which is why he ran. I don't think Dave really thought he was going to win in 76 when he ran. And uh, so we got Hutchinson backed out a surprise announcement in February of 76 after Stockman had made a number of forays. I'd been on the campaign since the first of the year. And then Hutchinson got five or six people again to get into the race. He endorsed other people, gave him a lot of money. And Stockman won with about 55% of the vote with six or seven people in the race. And so you went to Washington. So I went to Washington for the first time. I lived with a guy from Niles. And uh, I was in charge, in essence, of constituent service. I was the guy that did the harbor dredging. You you don't have a passport. I can finally get you one. I mean, I was the go-to guy. uh, And it was a great job. And after four years of doing that, I was ready for a new challenge. Before you get there, let me ask you what – It could be an impertinent question. So how much was the fact that you were in Upton matter to Stockman? Oh, I'm sure that, well, I knew a lot of people. Mm -hmm. Um, Upton name is still very popular here. So it didn't hurt. Didn't hurt. So you spent four years uh, as a congressional staffer. Yep, I did. And I was thinking about uh, law school after that. And and, uh, so I was actually, after he won his election in 1980, Stockman, uh, I lived on Capitol Hill, second in D Street. And uh, it was a great little townhouse that a couple of us shared. And I went into the office on Thanksgiving weekend uh, because they we had, we still have it. You know, it stays with your congressional office, all the equipment. We had a really nice blue selectric typewriter. So I was working on my resume on a Sunday afternoon of Thanksgiving and the phone rang. And I answered the phone. I said, Congressman Stockman's office, how can I help you? And this very familiar voice said, is he there? And I said, no, sir, he's not. And you recognized the oh, voice. Oh, yeah, you would too. And he said, well, I'd really like to talk to him. I said, well, congratulations, Governor. He said, well, can you get his number? I said, I can find him. He lives right next door to me. <laughs> he gave me his number. He said, well, I'm at the ranch. And of course, it was Ronald Reagan. And uh, I called Dave. And did I, you did you know right away that he was calling to ask him I to didn't serve? Know why, no, I did not know why. I suspected it. But before, so I called Dave and Dave said, well, did you get his number? Of course, he was very nervous. I said, of course I did. So well, what is it? I go, not so fast. <laughs> I said, uh, you got to call me back. I'm at the office and tell me what he said. So he said, <laughs> all right. And no, I said, I want you to repeat that. And remember, I was pretty close to Dave. And he said, Fred Upton, I will call you right back. So he, I got him to say that. And I gave him the number. And Dave called me back. And he said, Fred, you cannot tell anyone. But he offered me that he said, you are the only one that beat me in a debate. Uh, I did three debates and Dave had done the, the prep work for it. He said, as a consequence, I want to reward you with the toughest job in Washington, being director of the OMB. I didn't even know what OMB was uh, back then. Office of Management and Budget. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And uh, so make a long story. So I, I rolled up my resume that I was writing. I tossed it in the trash. Uh, and uh, a few months later, I joined him at OMB, where started as a LA legislative assistant, and then I ended up running the the shop, uh, weekly meetings with the president Reagan, uh, and 
So you sat in on these meetings? Yep. I got a lot of pictures in the Washington Post with Reagan at the cabinet and meeting. And what was I'm he like? Him. He was a great guy. I mean, he, you know, I, t- I tell you, I learned so much from him. He had a good sense of humor. I remember the first time he saw me, it was in the, the new executive office building across the street from the White House. And he's like chasing Dave and me down the hallway, like trying to push the hair out of our foreheads. I mean, you guys <laughs> got to get haircuts if you're going to work for me. I mean, it was... But he was um, – I didn't start working there until May of 81, but it was a great experience. But the lesson that I learned was this. A Republican president working with a Democratic Congress, he had a wonderful relationship uh, with the people that were there from Tip O'Neill to Bob Dole. And- it seems almost – I can almost see sepia-colored pictures here. It seems like such a distant memory uh, of that kind of, uh, I mean, and there were battles. I mean, you you were involved. Oh yeah, in, the, re- in, in, the reconciliation in the- was the first big process where that was used from the Budget Act of seventy four. Budget and 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 uh, the Reagan tax cuts and so on. Huge battles, and you guys were right in the middle of it. I want to come back in a second to the difference in times that in which we live today. But uh, Stockman became he may be still the most famous OMB director in history. I couldn't even tell you who the OMB director is today. Right. Now, it was, uh, but he was famous in in part, he was famous because he's right in the middle of all of this seismic change. He was famous because the economic situation in the country was so dire, and obviously you guys and the stuff you did was very much uh, related to to people's sense of the economy and so on. Uh, but the the other reason he was remembered was because he did this um, prodigious interview with The Atlantic, with uh, Bill Greider, who was a very good and famous writer about Washington and policy and so on, in which he described the economic program as a kind of Trojan horse through which to pass through these major changes. And he also acknowledged, we don't really have a handle on where all these numbers are going. And ultimately, he became, I think, concerned about the fact that you were passing tax cuts that weren't commensurate with the budget cuts and that it would lead to big budget deficits, which it did. OMB had a really elevated role that we haven't really seen since then. I mean, literally everything Stockman had a... I mean, I can remember when the budget came out, he eliminated the Small Business Administration, and they showed then the cabinet member for the small business, and he was driving down West Exec. That's the drive, you know, that connects. Yes. And literally on camera, this small business cabinet member takes the budget book, which is, you know, I don't know, almost a foot thick, and he throws it out the window <laughs> and just leaves it there on the street and drives away. Of course, we still have the Small Business Administration today. I mean, those, you know, he proposed a lim- lot of hard things. Hard to eliminate agencies. Uh, you know, I didn't agree with him on the raising the tax side of things, but he, he did. It, he cares, still does. I haven't talked to him for a while, but he cares deeply about the deficit and where things are. And of course, the deficit back then was a lot smaller than it is today. He talked about supply-side economics and the flaws in supply-side economics, which was like a sin against Reaganism to attack that. He did. He had some some support. You know, Pete Domenici was then the chairman of the budget. Pete and Dave were on the the same wavelength. So, but it it was a fascinating time. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. And now, 
back to the show. Having arrived in Washington, never having been here before in 1980, by 1986, you're coming back here to run for Congress. Well, I did. Actually, I had a number of local folks here uh, that had always been involved with Dave, uh, and I know them quite well, too. They, they came to me. I was now married to Black Labs, Wrigley and Gammon. You know, I want to bet on that. You know, I have yes. a little thing with my Cubs. But um, people came to me and asked me to then run for Congress against his successor. Who was would have fit in with today's yeah, kind of the Republican Freedom Party. Caucus, yeah. uh, for sure. Yeah. So uh, there were a lot of factors, and, and we decided not to. I said, you know, I love my job. I mean, I get to be with the president every week, and I got two black labs, a great wife, still have her. We've been married now 38 years. Uh, why would I want to, you know? So I said no, and then the folks came back to me a few months later and convinced me that, and so we came back, tested the waters, decided that we could win and uh, ran, and I beat the only incumbent to lose in the country in a primary in 86. And uh, he would, my opponent would certainly confess he made a huge mistake at the end with literally the race in a deadlock, dead heat. Uh, He made a crucial mistake that allowed us to win 56-44. And what was that? Well, he uh, released a tape. He did a cassette tape that he sent to the conservative churches uh, throughout our district. Uh, asking them, the congregations, to pray and fast to break the back of Satan. Hmm. And uh, we had a minister give it to us. Actually, and what, what did that mean that voting for you was that you were on the other side of this deal? You're correct. And uh, so it was. It broke the last weekend, the Thursday before the election, and we— Gave it to the press and it blew the story up and said, if I can't win now, things are, you know, something's wrong. But so we did. You you went to Congress and it was a different, as we as you were hinting at before, not hinting, you said it was a much different place when you arrived there uh, in 1987. But Bob Michael, who was from Illinois, was the minority leader. I remember he famously used to ride home to Illinois with Dan Rastenkowski, yeah. who was a Democrat uh, from Chicago. Uh, and it was a different environment. And then it started to change. Those changes, if you pointed a finger in a direction for those changes, a lot of them, a lot of the fingers would be pointed at Newt Gingrich. Talk about that, because politics became a lot more hard-edged. This notion of working across party lines became more difficult. Uh, talk about that transition and the role that Gingrich played. Well, they did become a lot more hard-edged, uh, even today, uh, for well, sure. Especially Just, today. Especially yeah. today. You know, back then, and you, know, you really had some pretty deep relationships. You did have people that traveled together. First, one thing, you didn't have to spend the money that you do now to, for an election. I mean, uh, my first election, even we were outspent three to one. I don't think Stockman ever spent more than fifty thousand bucks to get elected, and so now it's you know if if I had run this time, well, we probably would have spent ten million dollars. I mean, maybe more in a district. And who knows what the outside spending would have been? I mean, we, I mean that's just normal. I mean, so you had different relationships, um, but you have. Different factions. Now, back then as well, though, I mean, the Democrats, 
you know, I never thought that the Republicans would be in the, in the majority because for my lifetime, they really hadn't been. Uh, it was even in some of the Reagan, we didn't, we didn't even have enough votes to sustain a veto, uh, some of the, the races. So Newt was, uh, he was the new guy on the, on the street. He was very confrontational and, you know, he, he took Bob Michael and, and others out uh, and he, he moved up the ranks uh, pretty quickly. And where were you in all of this? I liked Newt. Uh, he was close to Stockman. I knew him from before. Uh, he cared about the deficit, which is what I cared about. And uh, there are a couple issues that had me side with Newt and uh, Newt won by one vote. So my vote mattered. <laughs> Because he won by one, um, but I was uh, I actually became one of Newt's deputy whips. And looking back, would you do the same thing? Yeah, I was. It was it was time to to move forward. I didn't find him to be terribly destructive. I mean, I mean, my impression was that that was sort of the line of demarcation where people stopped it, treating each other as sort of friendly adversaries, and it became much more pointed. Yeah, well, he, I mean, Gingrich, I think, is a seminal figure in our political history because of that. Yeah, I would agree. Just, uh, we could talk the whole rest of the time about your congressional record, but we got to talk about where we are today. I just want to ask you a couple of things about that. uh, One in particular, you've been deeply involved in both energy issues and environmental issues throughout your career. At one point, you were chair of the uh, Energy and Commerce uh, Committee. Um, And That tension is difficult. Um, Talk about that, because I know you've you've been involved very much in environmental initiatives to protect the Great Lakes in water quality and so on. You've been an opponent on sort of some air quality issues, regulating power plants and so on. Talk about how you balance those two things. Well, a couple of things. First of all, climate change is real. It's happening. Um, As we look at issues today, as chairman of the Energy and Commerce Committee, I did a lot of things uh, that I think promoted bipartisanship. I changed the rules of the committee that are still in place today, that bipartisan amendments go first, Uh, particularly on health care. I led the the fight on 21st century cures, which expedites the approvals of drugs and devices and really was the yes the issue that allowed us to see probably had some contact with uh with joe biden on that issue yeah that's exactly right he was a big promoter he was a huge help wouldn't have happened without his assistance and really put us together in the same place on a lot of different just let me interrupt you for one second on energy and i remember when you got elected chair of that committee and it was right after you guys took control of congress in 2011 i remember that very clearly because it's a big fight i uh i was uh, working in the white house at that time and i i still have the tire tracks from oh, yeah. that <laughs> on my rear end so i remember all of that but the big players in that midterm election, or one of the big players were the Koch brothers, and they elected a lot of members, to new members to the House. And it was written at that time that they also uh, were, were very, very interested in who was on your committee and who would chair your committee. And they weren't exactly sure about you because you showed some dangerous environmental instincts. Um, tell me about the pressures then, and, and what did you have to assure either Boehner or the Koch brothers uh, in, in order to to secure that chairmanship? I ran, there were four people that were competing for chairman of energy and commerce back in 2010. And it was it was a pretty big knockdown fight. I mean, Rush Limbaugh was going after me day in and day out. I mean, it was just 
really nasty stuff. Uh, Boehner at the end was supportive of me, and that that helped me uh, get to that spot. But I didn't cut any deal. I mean, on the energy side, I didn't have any pressure. That was uh, many, many years ago. And we haven't made the progress that we need to make. Uh, And, you know, we keep getting these really, really alarming reports uh, about how close we're creeping up to this, you know, 1.5 degrees over pre-industrial times that scientists say is a tipping point. The question I was really asking is, how do you balance economic concerns that go to fossil fuels, oil, gas, and so on, and drilling for them and producing them and so on, versus this seemingly immutable climb to a point where, you know, I worry about my grandkids. I mean, I worry about, and you see the turn on the weather every day and you see all these extreme events and it's like, yeah, man, it is happening. Yeah, no, it is. It is. Well, a couple things. First of all, you know, and and I opposed uh, Trump pulling out of the Paris Accords. Uh, And remember, those weren't those were goals uh, to actually reduce emissions. Uh, They weren't mandates. Uh, Some weaknesses for sure in that China and India were not part of that. They're allowed to increase until 2030, which is still a long way around the bend. Nonetheless, you did that. Yeah. But I, I opposed Trump pulling out. Uh, of the of that, I think it was one of maybe I don't know, eight or ten folks uh, Republicans that did that. Um, but I also know that you know I've been a strong supporter of nuclear, and we just lost a nuclear plant here, just went offline, and will stay offline for good. And of course, they have no emissions. Uh, I supported uh, methane reductions uh, uh, that President Biden signed into law a year ago uh, on the oil and gas industry. The big guys all said they could do it. Well, let's. Let's let them do that in terms of reducing emissions from methane. And major reductions in coal here in Michigan, we're not going to have any coal plants operating probably in the next six or seven years. And we've gotten, and natural gas has been a very important player in terms of reducing emissions, particularly versus coal. And but we you have, did oppose regulating uh, emissions from power plants, and that's a big source of CO2. Well, we're making progress on that. I, I think that, you know, that was a, a while ago, but. I thought we ought to have incentives to do that. And here in Michigan, we've actually done it. One area in which you've been, you've departed from orthodoxy is uh, on the Republican side, is on the issue of guns. And I know you're working now on some sort of legislation to try and respond to what we saw in Uvalde, what we saw in Buffalo. And you've been watching what's going on in the Senate. What do you hope will happen, and what is your level of optimism at this point of something happening? Well, for guns, I, you know, I was one of the, I don't know, twenty-some Republicans that voted for background checks back in the early '90s. Um, frankly, they're the same what we have here in Michigan. And I went to my sheriff department early on to see, you know, what exactly is the standard. I showed them my driver's license. They did a background check. I'm clean. You know, I've got a, I can buy a gun for the next three days or whatever. You know, when I voted for that. I had police protection in parades uh, because of the threats really? that came our way. You know, I voted for the 94 crime bill, uh, which was a tough vote back then, but it had uh, a number of provisions um, uh, that... In well, fact, it had the assault, we- was had the assault, assault weapons, weapons ban. was part of that as well. Uh, and of course, that then expired. It uh, was never brought back. Uh, what I think... Uh, we passed a, a pretty comprehensive bill in the, in the House now a few weeks ago, 
uh, and I supported that. We had individual amendments on all the titles. So as an example, we had an amendment to ban bump stocks. I voted yes uh, to ban it, to, to keep it in there. And of course, you know, I actually have, I, I know someone that was in that Vegas shooting mm. uh, back when I think 58 yeah. people were killed. Yeah. Um, this individual is deaf. Mm. She had no clue what was happening. Oh, my. Uh, but she knew that panic was, was all over the place. And I didn't know what a bump stock was then. And this is, a, of course, a device that you can put on a semi-automatic, and it makes it an automatic weapon. Right. You're, like, you're not going to be target shooting with something that sprays bullets all all, all over the place, and uh, which is another reason why I'm going to be pushing with legislation with David Cicilline this week on having an alert system on our cell phones. I can remember when we had two Capitol Hill police officers that were killed in the 90s. And had that guy just waited at the bottom of the stairs of the house steps, he could have gotten all of us rushing to the airport after the last vote. Instead, he went in to try and get Tom DeLay in his office. But what this bill this week is going to do is we'll send an alert if there's an active shooter, mm -hmm. uh, something that, frankly, now we member of Congress have. I mean, if there's anything that happens on Capitol Hill in terms of security, we now get something on our telephone saying, telling us that. Why shouldn't the American public have that as that, well? That, that, that makes sense. But in terms of trying to forestall or prevent mass shootings and deal with some of the this sort of weapons so of war. So background and checks are really important. Uh, and I, I was after Parkland, you know, I served on the education committee and I met with the kids from the Columbine. Uh, I met with the kids from Parkland and their parents. I met with the parents from Sandy Hook. We almost had a Sandy Hook here in our district in a little town called Pawpaw a few years ago. Just by luck, we, we escaped uh, from anything serious happening. But that red flag law, which I think almost two dozen states have now, came Rick Scott, Republican governor of of yes. Florida signed it into law, and when he signed it into law, he said something along the lines of, if the federal government doesn't do it, damn it, the state of Florida is. Governor well, Mike, he's in the federal government now. He's now not exactly he leading the I know, fight for well, it. I know. He's probably going to so, so just bottom line but it for Mike me. Mike Pence had it, too, uh, as governor. And so what the red flag law does is it provides incentives, not a mandate. Don't expect Texas to do this. But it says that if— Law enforcement officials or mental health officials believe that someone is in danger to themselves or to others, they can, with due process, take those weapons away until it's resolved. Right. This is, But this has obviously been controversial with the NRA. Oh, they're against it. Of course, for them right now, this is a major money-making deal. Yeah. Uh, they are, you know, go to their website. And this is a direct assault on the Second Amendment. You send money now. I mean, this is a group that filed for bankruptcy a few years ago. They're going to be very solvent when this thing is done. But just, just tell me what you think is going to happen. Because as time goes on, you know, the history of these things is there's momentum. And then it, I it, think we're it gonna drags get a deal. on. I think we're going to get a deal. I think that the, the Senate agreed in principle, uh, response, uh, more than 60 um, I think that we can see something happen literally within the next, uh, hopefully the next day or two, and and get it passed before the end of the week, and then have the House do it uh, immediately after the 4th of July when we come back. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files.
And now, back to the show. You've been a pillar of Congress for a very long time. You weren't a slam dunk vote for Trump on a number of issues. I think you were in the 70s somewhere in terms of your support for the president, not the uh, 95% that many in the Republican caucus were. You voted against the first impeachment when that came up. Why why did you, by the way, vote against the first impeachment? Well, he asked uh, Ukraine to do some things. He didn't actually get them. uh, And I I didn't think that that actually merited a uh, felony in terms of what he did. A bunch of us talked about it. We all sort of came to the same conclusion. But it did. It did. I mean, asking the president of Ukraine essentially to do a number on Biden without any particular evidence, it was sort of a a tell, was it not, about some of the things that ultimately caused you to vote for impeachment the second time? Well, the real deciding mark for me for impeachment, uh, I was one of the 10 Republicans that voted for it this uh, back in uh, 2021, was, of course, I was there on January 6th. I was in the Capitol earlier yeah, talk that about morning. That. Tell, talk about that day. You know, and because of COVID, I mean, traditionally, you know, this is when you count the ballots, the electoral votes, they bring them in in these nice yeah. little cases. And they, you know, anyway, the speaker said she didn't want people all on the floor to be close to each other. We've had actually had a number of colleagues pass away with COVID. So I said, well, this, I'm going to let the, the freshmen and the others, uh, I can watch this from my office. So. Our office was closed down, I guess, because of threats. Uh, they didn't want a lot of people there, you know. Yeah, let me ask you, let me interrupt here, because I know Kinzinger says that he tried to raise in caucus concerns about what was going to happen on the on the 6th and kind of got shut down by McCarthy. How much apprehension was there? I think there was a little bit, but nobody thought, I don't think anybody thought it was going to be like that. I mean, I... I went to the Capitol early that morning. I got my COVID test. I get tested like almost every week. And I went, I walked through the house chamber and then I went back to the office and I have a lengthy balcony that looks to the mall It's mm-hmm. uh, on, the, on the west side. So you had a pretty good view of what was I, I happening. I did. And so I had the, the doors open and, and I watched the folks uh, go down the mall to see hear the president that morning. And I'm, I'm the only one there at the office. Well, were you the only one there because you told I them was. not to come in? Yeah, I, I think that we did. I'm, I'm sure that that's what we just said. It just just because just of, of worry. A lot of people worked on the Hill. My chief of staff, she works on the Hill. Uh, she lives on the Hill. And my ledge director, he's uh, lives on. I mean, they usually walk to work. So, yeah. In security, they just said, stay away. So uh-huh. so I was there and I watched the group go to no leaves on the trees. And, uh, you know, I watched the president uh, give his remarks and then... What did you think when you saw his remarks? Oh, I was like shaking my head. I, so it was really not a surprise what was happening when you saw, and I didn't, you know, I've never really heard of the Proud Boys before, the, this group that uh, came up. And, and then literally right below my balcony is where the, uh, I don't know if they said National Guard, but the state troopers, I saw the state trooper bus coming up. Uh, they closed Independence Avenue, which is right below me. I mean, it was... You could hear the noise. You could get. You, know, you heard the flashbangs. I mean, all the different things. Uh, I've got a Capitol Hill police officer from Benton Harbor uh, that I spent some time with after the fact, who actually rushed in uh, to try and help. He was on the Senate side, 
you know, I, I watched the, the video, some of the, the, self, the body cams of some of the officers uh, that were there way before they were made public. To your question, what really turned me, the president said literally the next day that he had done everything in his words, totally appropriate. And I said, that's not true. That's just not the case. And now is this January 6th commission is, and I don't know anything, you know, other than what everybody else does because not, I'm not on the commission. <laughs> I didn't want to be, got asked. I said, not on my bucket list, but, you know, they've not shared with us what they're doing with the hearings until we actually see it. But it's pretty clear that there was a conspiracy that was that was brewing, trying to overturn this election. And, you know, did the president do everything totally appropriate? Absolutely not. I want to return to the time frame, but when you say there was a conspiracy, would you think he was culpable for that? I mean, well, you- we'll find out soon. I mean, that's I think is what the next hearing is as we talk about it today. I think the next hearing is going to talk about that. But I know here in Michigan was 154,000 votes. The Republican state Senate actually did a, a thorough investigation and came to the conclusion that there were maybe two people that were deceased that might have voted, but they couldn't tell for sure. You know, the former president talks about more people voting in Detroit than actually live there. No, that was never the case that's there. I mean, it's just, uh, they didn't send ballots. The president talked about sending ballots to everybody. No, that they didn't do that. You can, you can send applications to fill out to then for the individual to return to their county or city clerk, but they didn't. No one ever sent a ballot to, to them. They, could, yeah. That 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 it's not part of the process here at all. You and I have... actually got an application to vote from the Trump campaign. Is that right? Who did you talk to before you cast this vote? What did your What did your chief of staff and your staff say? What did your wife say? What did the leader say, McCarthy, when you told him what well, you were going to do? Well, the to go in reverse order, the, the leadership really said it was a, a vote of conscience. Uh, they said that, and that's how I viewed it. Uh, and you know, as I talked to members, so I was not in the chamber when it was almost overrun. Uh, I talked to a lot of people that were, so I didn't have that fear or panic as they were led then to the Longworth building, uh, to the place of refuge, as I stayed in my office uh, the entire time. But I just, you know, we came, you know, looking back, uh, I would agree with some that say we came back within a few minutes of really a a massacre of of members that would have been on the House chamber. Mike Pence was... 40 feet away from people yeah. who, who who wanted to kill him. Yeah, and with his wife and, and brother, my colleague Greg. Um, and I think that would have happened on the House chamber, frankly, had that woman not been shot trying to get through the doors. So given all this, though, what, what, did people, I, what did people say to you, Fred, though? What did people say to you? You knew you were going to be among a very few. You know, the, and that the, could be the, career ending. Well, and it was. Take Tom Rice. Uh, yeah. You know, you know, there used to be an old adage that, you know, people complained about Congress because they care more about their reelection than they do about the job that they do. Clearly not the case with Tom Rice. I mean, it was a really tough. He just vote. lost his race he in South just Carolina. just lost his primary race. Um, and it was because of that. But he did the right thing. He will tell you he did the right. He has no regrets about what he did. I have no regrets about what I did. I knew it was not going to be the most popular vote uh, for sure with my constituents. But I saw it firsthand. And I also heard the president say it was totally appropriate. And I knew better. Four of you who voted for impeachment have announced that you're not running again. Liz Cheney is 30 points behind in her race. 
in Wyoming. Uh, others may have a, a better chance to survive. I should ask you about Peter Meyer, your colleague from Michigan. What do you think his chances are? I think Peter's P- Peter's chances are pretty good. Uh, his district is adjacent to mine. I'm not in the same media market in that I can't get Grand Rapids TV at w- where I live. He's worked hard. He is um, he's a remarkable guy. You know, he, he didn't graduate from West Point. Uh, but he still did his time after, and he and he went to Iraq. I think he's gonna do, he'll he'll be fine. I mean, mm-hmm. he's working hard as he, as he should. We all we all have to do that. How important is it for some of those who voted for impeachment to survive a primary? Well, it is important, and uh, again, for you know, for Adam Kinzinger, I mean, for, his big decision was you know they messed up his district. Right. Uh, same thing with me. Right. Uh, Rice lost flat out mano a mano, but I. You know, Liz is, you know, she's raised a pretty good amount of money. She's going to have a good message. That primary is not until mid-August. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of time. I mean, they know who she is. She's a good, you know. But what does it mean? Why is it important? Well, it shows that you're not just a one-issue person, but you ought to respect someone who makes a vote of conscience, especially in light of what the January 6th commission now is putting out in terms of the hearings that they've had. And ultimately, what that conclusion will be uh, when they finish, and probably in a couple of weeks. Isn't Liz Cheney, who I admire, the mark of political courage? Is are you willing to risk your career for a principle? You she did was that. on a path to be a speaker. It doesn't. It just occurs to me every time she very eloquently makes presentations at these hearings that each time she's probably making it harder for herself to win a primary in a, in, a, in a state that is very much like, I mean, her terrain, it's a different area, but in terms of ideology and so on, not unlike the Rice District, very conservative. Yeah, I don't know Wyoming all that well, but yeah, it's a conservative state for sure. What about McCarthy? Because he seems, there are all these tapes out there, he denied saying things that he ended up saying. You were probably in some of these caucuses where he spoke. What do you make of his sort of transformation? Well, Kevin's been working to be speaker for a long time. I do think that the House is going to flip for a variety of reasons. Um, I think that's highly likely. Highly likely. I would agree. But I think for Kevin, and he's working very hard, the, the question will be whether or not you know, the magic mark is 218 votes in the House. Yes. For Kevin to be Speaker, he has to be over 230. So, yes, we have to do better because than Because otherwise expected. the Freedom Caucus will have so much right. leverage. And that- so will Trump. I mean, mm-hmm. Trump is, you know, who knows what day, what Trump will say on what day it is. I mean, mm-hmm. he's he's good at reversing himself uh, on a variety of different so things. So McCarthy needs a, a, a He needs bigger. a cushion. He needs a cushion. But it's, it seems like he's taken out some, trying to take out some Trump insurance by doing a 180 on what Trump's culpability was. Well, and I think everybody saw that, mm-hmm. and that's why he's going to need more than 230. There was a voicemail that was left for you. Oh, uh, he had a lot of them. Yeah. This was sort of representative of saying, I hope you die. I hope everybody in your effing family dies, and it Called you an effing piece of... uh, Use my initials in a negative way. Yes, exactly. Exactly. So everybody can figure that out there. We've got a very smart group listening here. How fearful were you? We got a lot of threats. Most of them, thank goodness, were not from our district. Um, That one that you just read, I think, was from South Carolina or Pennsylvania. I don't remember which one. Although Michigan Uh, is, you know, we know that there's quite a bit of militia activity here. We 
I had protection. I mean, you'd go to the airports and, you know, I they would the police would meet me and escort me to my, you know, there's no direct flights from my district back to D.C. So flying through Detroit or someplace, uh, I would be met by law enforcement. And even when I landed at DCA, I'd be met with law enforcement. Were you worried about your family? You always worry, but I didn't feel that it was directed to, to them. They 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 felt secure. And my, my kids are not here in town, so no one really knows where they are. But I mean, that's who I care about the but most. But it's awful to think that you have to even think about that. And you showed me a, a, a letter that Adam Kinzinger got, who is on the committee, another person who's not running for re-election this year in Illinois. And it was worse than what I just read and basically was bluntly threatening well, to really, execute him and his wife and child. And child and even even talked about uh, how blasphemous it was that his child is named Christian. So we got a bunch of similar stuff, voicemails at my phone, not out at my, my district office, but at my home as well. That was, it did warrant protection, but I, it would go away after a while. Um, how, how responsible do you think Trump is for ginning all of this up? Well, it's a, um, it's a result of what happened. There's no question about it. I, I don't think that but he keeps well, propagating yeah, the same. Well, I know he did so this last weekend again. I mean, he still started talking about the stolen election. And he, you know, it's it's it didn't happen. <laughs> you know, show us the show us where the ballots were were mismarked or whatever that would have turned it over. They they haven't come. But over. you know that seventy percent or so, somewhere between sixty five and seventy percent of Republicans believe it did. Yeah, I know, because he they believed in him. Very loyal. He had a very loyal support base. And he's still, you'd have to say, if you look at polls, the putative front runner. Yeah, in- I would agree that he is. What would it mean if he got reelected after all this? Well, he would uh, he would have a real band of, if, if you thought he had loyal people before, <laughs> just wait, wait till next time. And what does that mean for the country? Well, I don't know that he'd win in November, uh, but I think that he has a, a decent shot of being our nominee if he, in fact, decides to run. And it sounds like he's going to make that decision relatively soon. You know, we were talking before we started recording about this uh, convention over the weekend in Texas of the Texas Republican Party, and they actually passed a resolution uh, asserting that Trump won the election and that Biden was not the legitimate president, along with a lot of other, you know, sort of classic... Uh, they booed Senator Cornyn for negotiating uh, with Democrats over sort of modest gun reforms. You've been very active uh, on that issue. They assaulted Dan Crenshaw, a, col- a colleague of yours who's quite conservative, a war hero. Lost an eye in Afghanistan. How do you process all of that as someone who's devoted your life yeah, to... It's a, it's a wild time. You never would have thought something like this. Uh, you know, platforms, they're always hard right or hard left, depending upon the party, I presume. You can always find something that's like, do they really agree to that? But I was very surprised to see that. In the, you know, I saw just this morning uh, that Texas had, in fact, put in their platform that denying that President Biden had, had won his election, when in fact he did. Most, most of my colleagues now, I mean, I think I was among the very first who actually complimented him on, on winning back in November of of 2020. Uh, but to still raise that as an argument, actually have that in a party platform, 
there's a reason I don't live in Texas. We, we should point out he got in trouble when he was, I think back in 2018, he was here in this area and he made a speech and he yeah. complimented you, he I think because of your work together on the Cures Act. He did. So he came and spoke to the Economic Club. Talking about President Biden. Yeah. He spoke to the Economic Club, which my grandfather had started back in the, I don't know, 30s or 40s. And uh, uh, on totally out of the blue, he said something along the lines of, Fred Upton, when we solve cancer, I mean, he's one of the nicest guys you know I've ever worked with. Uh, and the Democrats went crazy. The, yeah. the chairman of the party was at the next table. <laughs> because this actually, this district is a one of the few, or was, it no yeah, longer just, is yeah. one of the few swing districts, yeah, uh, and our, you 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 won by I think four points in 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 nineteen in twenty eighteen. Yeah, I won with fifty point two percent. Remember, they've got multiple people running in uh, eighteen, but I won by twenty points in in twenty. Now we, the redistricting that was done by commission here put you in a district with a a right wing incumbent a Trump supporter, and you took a while to decide. Tell me about making that decision not to run, which, of course, Trump heralded as a victory. The commission actually wrote two new open seats. No no incumbent lived there. And then they took my district, and they took two-thirds of my home county, and they put it with Lake Erie. So it stretches from Lake Erie to Lake Michigan. Maybe a chance for an Erie Canal. Maybe, I don't know. I say that with a smile, but um, and they put my hometown literally just north of the where I live, north of the river, uh, and uh, they took Upton Middle School away from me. They added instead of twenty thousand new constituents that I would have had to grow, uh, three hundred and fifty thousand, mm-hmm. and really made it impossible. And you know I've done this great staff, wonderful family, thirty six years. It would have been a fun more campaign. than half your life. You've been a member of Congress. Yeah, it would have been a fun campaign. <laughs> I like campaigning, but for one more term, maybe uh, time to do something else. So once the judges made the formal decision that certified the map at the end of March is when we came to the final conclusion that I was not going to be a candidate in 22. What's it going to be like when you walk out of that building for the last time, given the fact that this has defined your life? It's going to be hard. You know, I got that route down. <laughs> I got to, I live, uh, when I married Amy, when I worked for, for Reagan, um, you know, I crossed, you got to cross a bridge. We, we live in the same neighborhood that we did when we got married. So I know that route. I'd be a good Uber driver. <laughs> that's that's for sure. And get anywhere I figure. More, more than just the route. You you, you know, you have, you've invested so much of. I got a lot of friends on both sides of the aisle. I've had a wonderful staff of getting things done, and I'm not done. I mean, I'm not. I'm going to be involved in who knows what. Started to think about that. Uh, probably the next couple of weeks, what what will happen? But it's been a great run. We've got a lot of things. To be Would you run for. for office again? I don't think so. I'm, I'm, even though I still got, you know, I got carded at Wrigley this last weekend. Did you? I did, you paid to have that happen. No, I had to you wear. To I had to happen. wear a little armband thing, you know, that I was 21, <laughs> and I actually, I, I, the bartender remembered me in the bleachers this from must, last you must year. Have promptly dyed your hair gray, yeah, like yeah. This. <laughs> no, I had a hat on. I'll confess, I had a hat on. I didn't want to get sunburned. So, and what will you do? Will you be like Kinzinger has made clear he. 
his mission is to prevent Trump from being the nominee, and if Trump is the nominee, to prevent him from becoming president. Uh, do you feel the same way? I, you know, I'm not going to, you know, Adam has actually started his own pack. I think he's raised three, four million dollars. Yeah, yeah. uh, I don't, I don't have something like that. I mean, I, I'll be involved. I'll be engaged uh, politically, I'm sure. But, you know, that's not going to be my cause celeb. But that's not going to be my driving force in terms of what I decided You didn't to support do. Trump the two times that he ran before. Well, I did. I, I did not support him in 2016. I didn't mm. know him. Mm-hmm. I said I've never met him. I didn't meet him until well into his, you know, his, his first year. And I, uh, we had it. We knew we had a tough race, uh, as we always do. And I said our focus is going to be on our race, not anybody else's. And uh, 2020, uh, I, I supported Trump on, you know, all the economic stuff, the, the mm-hmm. tax cuts, the border security, a number of things. Obviously, I disagreed with him on, you know, when he called a couple of my colleagues uh, really bad names, uh, you know, Charlottesville, other things. I, I took him to task on that. Guns, I was, you know, I was for banning bump stocks uh, early on. It took mm-hmm. him a year before he actually did the But you the endorsed him. But order. now you say you didn't know Trump in 2016. You know him now. Uh, yeah, I can see and, and he certainly knows you. Yeah, I uh, don't think he's going to be looking for my endorsement in twenty four. No, but what will you tell the American people? Yeah, well, I, I think I want to wait to see what how much water goes over the dam. Um, you know, I don't know what's going to who the who the candidates are going to be in in twenty four. Uh, I'll be supporting somebody else. Having voted to impeach the president, you don't see any set of circumstances under which you would endorse him again, would you? No, I don't think so. Mm-hmm. Fred Upton, it's great to be with you. And best of luck to you. Thanks for your service. 36 well, years. thank you for being one of my constituents until the end of the year. Yes. Well, I, I'm going to stick around under lesser leadership. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, it's a nice place to be, but it's good to be with you. Thank you. You bet. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files. Brought to you by the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio. The executive producer of the show is Allison Siegel. The show is also produced by Miriam Finder Annenberg, Jeff Fox, and Hannah Grace McDonald. And special thanks to our partners at CNN, including Rafina Ahmad, Courtney Coop, Ashley Lusk, and Megan Marcus. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.